All right. Well, I am joined by Dr. Joseph Winters now, one of our uh, three presenters on our panel. And so first of all, just want to say uh, thank you for taking the time to record with me today and, and share just sort of some, some general thoughts about your book. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> so we're talking about your, your, um, your book, Hope Draped in Black, uh, out uh, with uh, Duke University Press. And I guess just the first question is, you know, what is the topic of the work? If, if, we, if we wanted to know, what is this book? Uh, what's your primary thesis? Could you give us just a, a little insight into that? Sure. So I think the, the book basically has, I think, kind of two arguments. Um, one is the, maybe the critique and one is the more generative uh, <clears throat> uh, proposal, constructive proposal. So one is that basically a certain, right, what I call like the grammar of progress, um, which I think has many different expressions. I think one sees it in, you know, no, certain notions of humanism where just, you know, certain notions of secularism where uh, throughout time humans just, you know, are, are advancing in some kind of linear way, right? Um, you know, um, and this is, a, it's not always uh, explicit, but some, some notion of, of, of a telos of perfection. Um, I think that what I'm calling the grammar of progress, the concern I have without acknowledging that, that achievements happen over time is that a certain image of progress ends up in Walter Benjamin's language kind of uh, killing the dead twice, right? What, 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 so the idea here is that, you know, notions of progress, civilization, uh, end up justifying, right, um, you know, all kinds of imperial and colonial projects, right, um, imposed on those who are supposedly, right, lagging behind or backward or not keeping up with progress or, so, or, or such that people can become civilized or something like that. And then the, 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 I think the repetition for Benjamin is that there's a way in which um, narratives of history uh, incorporate the dead incorporate, um, you know, the, 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 the victims of history in kind of a triumphant manner, right? So it's almost as if like, uh, because things are getting better, that past is redeemed, or legacies of not just suffering, but legacies of struggle get incorporated to just reaffirm, right, the order of things, right? So we think, we can certainly think about the ways in which I started off uh, the book thinking about the ways in which the civil rights movement, you know, it's gone through years and years of being, right, you know, uh, aligned with triumphant notions of America and the ways in which, uh, you know, uh, you know, Barack Obama's ascendancy became a way to, to, to kind of turn that legacy into an affirmation of, of U.S. exceptionalism and so forth. So that's the first part. So the second part is what I, what I, what I talk about, I use the language of melancholic hope, which I want to suggest that uh, what I'm talking, when I call melancholy, which, um, you know, for me is a kind of, uh, you know, emphasis on remembrance and a, and a constant awareness of the kind of violence and suffering that the social order produces and needs to organize itself. Um, but that's not necessarily inseparable from hope, right? So I try to, to, to develop a notion of, of, or a notion of possibility that's not optimism and that's actually opened up by a kind of, right, uh, remembrance and mourning. Um, and so I looked at, you know, I, I want to suggest that Black literary and aesthetic practices are ways in which we see kind of the, the relationship between melancholy and hope in ways that I think get beyond some kind of dualism of like optimism and like despair or something like that. So yeah. You know, as you were speaking about that first argument about uh, the grammar of progress, I, I, I was wondering, in, in your mind and in in your understanding, are we peculiarly susceptible to that temptation in the United States, or 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 am I or am I off on that? So, I, I've thought about this a lot um, because it's you know. So I, I when I think about it, U.S. exceptionals, I, I, so I was part of this panel. Um, a couple of years ago at Indiana University, and there was a scholar, uh, maybe I think she might she might have been from Britain, um, but she was like, it could be that U.S. exceptionalism is is indicative of, of 
<laughs> that, that people in the United States think that, that that's exceptional when maybe there's a way in which, right, there's something about nation states that produce their own sense of exceptionalism. But I think for me, what's, what's, what's you know, I think for me, it, that this might or might not be true, but there is something about, and this is what I'm getting, I think, from, from James Baldwin, right? There is a sense of like, <laughs> A kind of will to innocence, right? And, and I, I don't know if that's particularly American, but it does seem like it at times. Like even the way in which, um, um, you know, you see uh, certain leaders get, get very surprised when you even mention empire, that that could be something that's even associated with, with the U.S. So I do think that there's something about a certain kind of will to innocence um, and a certain kind of denial that might be, you know, you obviously we'll see elsewhere, but might have a particular valence in, in our culture. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to, yeah, that, that will to innocence is fascinating. I, uh, as a graduate student, I lived both in the UK and, and, and in France, and, and the sort of reckonings with racism, colonialism in those places is by no means, uh, we all know, um, ideal. Right. But there, what, I, what I did find there was this, uh, this cultural uh, awareness of a colonial past, and 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 even admitting to it, and even sort of admitting to the the former empire sort of uh, disposition was different than I had been used to in my country. Where, as you just said, to to talk about American empire means you know however many people in the room are going to get kind of nervous and 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 not want to not want to go there. So anyway, exactly, um, exactly, exactly. Well, as 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 you think about your book and the writing process and and what got you started on it, I guess I'm wondering, you know. What gap in the literatures or knowledge did you want to fill in here? You know, who, and, and on top of that, uh, who were the main audiences? Yeah. Yeah, great question. So it's interesting because now I think about, uh, I, I, you know, you know our, our work takes on different, uh, different lives uh, after it's written. But so at the time, I think at the time, you know, the book was in some way a rearticulation of my dissertation. It was different, but dissertation was on Theodore Adorno and Toni Morrison. And so... What I was trying to do was try to try trying to think, and it's still in the book as well. Um, was think at the intersection of the Frankfurt School kind of critical theory and Black studies, which you probably know is sometimes difficult because Adorno had a very scathing critique of jazz music, and, and you know, not to suggest that that Black literature, Black culture is reducible to jazz, but that's that's obviously a kind of celebrated tradition, understandably. I think that Adorno's um, criticism, I think, is somewhat misunderstood. But there's still at times where it's like, no, this is Eurocentric, this is racist, right? And he, there's a way in which in later in his life, he reflected on, on making hasty dismissals. But there's just, at least for me, there were moments when I would try to have conversations in certain, uh, certain contexts where that was the only, it was hard to get around that, right? So, um, and I would also have conversations, um, you know, and let's say like German studies departments with students and, and I mentioned a Du Bois or Ralph Ellison and they didn't really like, wait, what does that have to do with this, right? So. For me, what I thought I was trying to do at the beginning was thinking at, not, not that other people hadn't thought with, with Benjamin or hadn't thought with Marcusa and so, but we know that Angela Davis had it, you know, she was influenced by Marcusa, they knew each other. But I think for me, I thought I was trying to bring, think, think at the intersection of kind of continental, uh, kind of critical theory, first wave critical theory, particularly Adorno and Benjamin and black studies, particularly around, you know, the critique of progress and what I'm calling, you know, melancholic hope. So that was one, um, and and I think um, so. That that was yeah. So that was one thing in the gap, and I think also it was a kind of uh, you know around that time. I feel like um, when I was doing my dissertation, and then I started writing the book around 2012. The morning melancholy kind of literature, had, which is it was like a boom. It seemed to me um, a lot of people were going back and revisiting um, 
Freud's um, Morning and Melancholy essay, Melancholy essay from 1917. So Judith Butler, David Eng, Religious Studies, David Kim, Ann Chang, you know, and it was just a lot of, you know, it was just like, you know, Fred Moten. I was like, oh, okay, this is giving me a way to think through these things. But what I didn't always see um, was, 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 first of all, the kind of, right, all, I didn't always see the ways in which I, I think melancholy was, was not, because all of those authors were thinking about the ways in which the morning melancholy isn't, there shouldn't be, we shouldn't think of it as some kind of dichotomy and that melancholy might not just be depression or something like that or despair, but I didn't always see a ways in which like the political implications of melancholy and the ways you can push back against, it was implicit, but it wasn't explicit, where we can like actually refuse certain uh, triumphant notions of progress and open up different ways of thinking about possibility. So I think, it, I think those things were implicit, but I just wanted to make it more explicit, particularly in a moment where um, uh, you know, the first black president, the first right, um, was, you know, in many ways, um, discourses around him were kind of right, rearticulating this notion of, of U.S. exceptionalism and, and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it, you mentioned that 2012 uh, boom in the melancholy uh, market. Right. And I was thinking of that just in terms of as what you said at the outset there about the, the grammar of progress. And we have uh, Barack Obama running on, you know, this very simple slogan in 2008 of, of hope. Okay. And and by 2012, um, it seems as if there's there's an interest in investigating things like um, you, you know melancholy and um, pessimism and right. other things, just right. because there was a, I think a, a recognition on part of the academy and other places that uh, all of that sophomore talk about a post-racial America and reaching new heights was was just not turning out as it as as uh, as some were were projecting, and so it it makes it anyway. That seems to make sense in terms of um, how those things came together, and uh, it's really fascinating. So, um, in terms of your audience, did you did you feel as if you know one of the things that uh, strikes me is you're talking to German studies folks and and talking about Ellison or, or Du Bois, and and in some sense, I'm sure there was ways you were blowing their mind because they they did, had never heard that stuff, and yet they at some at some point, I'm sure they were like. As you said, what does this have to do with German studies? And then, and just the opposite, right? You know, you're bringing in, as you said, first wave criticism. And I'm sure there were folks, uh, other folks in religious studies or uh, in black studies who were sort of thinking, uh, yeah, you know, what, what do we need this? So, um, you know, how, how did that work out in terms of your audiences? And, and, um, and, and yeah. So that's, that, that's, that's a great question. So I think when I was, I think when I first was, sending out my book proposal. I think I saw it as a kind of, I want to be in conversation with kind of, whether it's German studies or just kind of uh, continental critical theory, right, as well as black studies, I was setting it up like that. And it seemed to me that I was getting, uh, you know, feedback from different presses, um, you know, that, that maybe you need to <laughs> settle on one or the other. You need to, you need to, you need to, you know, you need to kind of um, prioritize one. And maybe that doesn't mean that like the, right. And I think what they were, they were, they were suggesting is prioritizing black studies and black literature, which doesn't mean that uh, you know, Adorno or Benjamin can't be part of the conversation. So I think the, the, the audience that I, I think I ended up thinking about was a, a kind of those interested in kind of black religion, black studies, maybe, right. But also seeing myself being, well, I mean, you know, black studies and, and black literature are, are always for me in conversation with other kinds of, right. I mean, with other, um, you know, other, 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 other subject positions, right. Racialized subject positions, thinking about melancholy. Right. So, um, 
thinking about psychoanalysis and race and so forth. Um, I also, uh, you know, saw myself in conversation with political theory. Um, you know, those who are thinking about uh, the politics of mourning, the politics of affect, um, you know, Sheldon Wolin thinking about the ways in which civic celebrations and civic rituals, civic religion even, uh, shapes political dis dispositions and desires and memories. So um, I think those were, you know, so I thought about that in, in an academic setting, but I also thought outside of the academy, I was thinking like people, you know, people who are um, activists, people who are interested in the relationship between aesthetics and politics, and frankly, you know, people who are, you know, uh, thinking about um, what, um, thinking about the kind of excitement, right, and maybe even critical around the kind of excitement around Obama, because because Obama himself was always like, listen, like this post-racial stuff, like like he was never on board with that. But the kind of the kind of meanings and connotations that were attached to his ascendancy and how that's part of a broader legacy. So I think that right. So I think that that was the kind of audience um, that I hoped it, uh, that I hoped. My, my the book would attract mm -hmm. yeah that's great thank you for for taking us through that um i guess you know I, I, as we think about uh the book now I, i'm wondering what are the key takeaways you hope readers you know garner from everyone is, is going to have their own interpretation their own analysis their own critique but uh mm -hmm. you know uh in your mind what are the key things that the folks might walk away with uh from your book yeah i think um I mean, I think the one thing is, is, is to take seriously, and I think we see this, I'm gonna be careful here, but I, I, think, I think I saw this this past weekend. Um, as much as I obviously I wanna you know, affirm and support the kind of energy, the kind of excitement and the kind of relief around uh, Biden and, and Harris getting those, you know, uh, get, get, getting the electoral vote, um, even though there might be a stalling in the transition, um, I wanna take that seriously. But already, I mean, the kind of present, like already in, in, in Biden's speech, right, you already kind of see the ways in which that excitement, that understandable and that very important excitement, right? you know, even though I have melancholic sensibilities, I think joy is important. I think, you know, I think energy, I mean, I think, I, I think, uh, you know, um, and so, so that kind of joy, that kind of relation, I think that's really important, but already the way that that's being, you know, uh, corralled in some way and kind of mobilized according to like, you know, restoring, restoring something, right? So if it's not make America great again, it's restoring the soul of America. I don't really see the difference. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, essentially it's, 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 that's very similar, even though it might have different effects. Um, you know, the language of, you know, overcoming division when actually this election shows just, just the divisions that, are, that have been there, right? Those antagonisms that have been there. Um, so, so, you know, so, so, so for me, I think the takeaway is, right, is to take seriously the political and ethical implications of, of, affect, like of, of, you know, of the kind of affective dimensions and resonance of our stories and narratives, right? Um, that you, you can't divorce the political from like something like the cultural, right? Um, not only because like we're talking about imagination, but we're also talking about how, you know, how affect and sensibility gets organized and structured, right? Um, so I think there's that. I also think that there's, there's in this, you know, at the time I didn't, you know, I was reading some of the authors associated with like, you know, black optimism and futurism and those with Afro-pessimism. I've written a lot more about it now, but I think, you know, what I was trying to get at is, you know, there are traditions within critical theory, black studies, black feminism, where, you know, we don't have to choose, right? We don't have to choose between one another. Where actually what might be the most interesting in these traditions um, is that, um, is, 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 is the ways in which, right, um, 
you know, something like hope or possibility and melancholy in the sense of the tragic kind of come together without a resolution and maybe open up ways to, maybe we need to just use different, different language to talk about the kinds of sensibilities and dispositions that are necessary um, at any moment uh, to, to face the various modes of power and violence that we, that, that, that you know, that we're subject to. Mm. You know, I, if, if you don't mind, uh, Dr. Winters, I, I, if I could just ask if, if this connects to something you said earlier, because you said earlier that, um, you know, we were just talking about that, the grammar of progress and American exceptionalism. And, and it strikes me that, you know, theoretically you turned as a resource to, as you mentioned, but, you know, Ben, Benjamin Marcuse, mm -hmm. and I wonder if it's, if, if you think this is, uh, what you think of this, uh, avenue uh, of analysis when it came to world war two and that, that sort of, um, moment of, um, of uh, uh, radical evil and triumph mm -hmm. over it. In the American right. narrative, it's always one of triumph and right. unity. Yeah, right. and, and what I find in, in uh, continental critical theory stemming from World War I, right. and then also stemming later from World War II is, is a, a sort of confrontation with that tragic sensibility yeah. in ways right. that I, it, it seems we've never uh, allowed to become part of our mainstream politic here. Um, right. Does that strike you as accurate in, in the sense that, you know, that sense of, I'm thinking of the French angoisse, like anxiety, yeah. tragedy, melancholy, right. that's right. just, that hangs over the 20th century in Europe in ways that, um, you know, our triumphant narrative of, hey, we swooped in in World War II and saved the day. That's right. It seems to cover over some of that. And anyway, right. maybe I'm way off here. So tell me, you know, what? No. No, that that so that makes so. I've been trying. I've been thinking a lot about this, right? So, one of the things that I've been thinking about is so. For instance, you know, I've taught um, I've taught a Marx Freud Nietzsche class, right? Uh, before Marx Freud Nietzsche, I've taught um, you know a course where we read, let's say, Frankfurt School folk and. Um, you know, a Amy Hollywood, Sensible Access, right? And thinking about the ways in which, yeah. So if you're George Bataille, you know, um, if you're, you know, Simone Weil, right? Simone de Beauvoir, right? Like, you know, I mean, World War One itself, right? World War One itself, I mean, especially like the, the French context where so much of the fighting right, happened on French soil. I mean, you're talking about, right? Like tens of millions of people, right? Um, you know, someone like Sigmund Freud, right? I mean, you know, he, you know, loses his daughter to the influenza outbreak there, right? So, I mean, I'm just trying, I'm just, so there's a sense in which, like, you, when you read these, these authors, you, on one hand, you're seeing World War I, World War II, the emergence of fascism, the ways in which um, the kind of hopes around Marxism and communism become, right, like, you know, the kind of totalitarian regimes, what that does there, for, particularly for someone like Walter Benjamin, who writes uh, his essay on the theses of, 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 of um, you know, on, on the philosophy of history or the concept of history, um, right after the kind of German uh, Soviet uh, non-aggression pact, right? I think it was that's thirty-nine. So, I mean, you know, I'm not a historian, but th those historical contexts are really, really important, right? And so, when you, you know, so you know, George Bataille is writing some of his work under German occupation, right? So, I mean, so 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 you're seeing the sense not 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 of not of just this, not of despair and some kind of but but a sense in which like yeah, right? Like you know. 
uh, human beings are broken. Like violence is constitutive. It's not reducible to private property. There might be something else, right? Like something, something like hostility, something like the need for a scapegoat, right? And so what's interesting to me though, and I don't think in, in, in uh, Hope J. Dan Black, I dealt enough with this, but it is interesting to think like, like so I focused a lot on Du Bois' uh, Souls of Black Folk. But the, you know, the, the boy, the, the boys uh, of let's say 1920-ish, 1921, Darkwater, or later the boys, even like um, when he's, um, what is it? The World in Africa, I think is the, is the essay. Um, one of the things he's saying is like, look, like this violence that, this, this violence and this anguish that we're seeing, right? Internal to Europe, right? The colonial world, <laughs> right? Right, I mean, right, indigenous folk, right? Um, you know, in the Americas, Africa, Asia, I mean, right, like, like, no, that violence was actually normalized, right? And we can almost see it as a kind of boomerang. So Hannah Arendt takes this up later on in Origins of Totalitarianism, right? But, you know, you get in people like M.A. Césaire, Du Bois, Fanon, and others, where it's not about a competition thing, right? It's not that. It's like, who suffers the most? It's like, no, if we really want to understand those totalitarian forms of violence, right, right, within, right, within Europe, right, in the 20th century, it's not a trivializing. It's like, if we really want to understand that, we have to understand this broader context of colonial violence, right? And it seems to me, um, so, so depending on what strand of American thought we look at, right, there might be a sense in which that sense of the tragic, I mean, you know, um, I think of someone like James Baldwin, for instance, right? But there's still always this sense, right, even with someone like Baldwin, where, you know, he spends a lot of his time, obviously, a lot of his life in, in, you know, in Paris, Switzerland, and even in Turkey. But, you know, even Baldwin appreciates at times, right, the sense of possibility that he associates with Americanness, right? So, but I, but, I, but I do want to take very seriously what you said. I do want to take very seriously context. I want to take seriously the kind of, you know, post-World War II narratives and how, you know, you see America kind of, or the United States replacing, you know, maybe, you know, <laughs> Europe as like the global imperial force and, the, and, and, and just the narratives around that, right? The narratives around that, because like, what, you know, if that's a triumph for, for the United States, what does that mean for what does that mean for japan right i mean like what you know what i mean like you know thinking about the atomic right you know so so anyway yeah so yeah yeah yeah. no no it's fast i feel like this is a one of those moments where uh my podcast i'm i'm prone to a a a three-hour tangent so i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna be disciplined and i'm gonna ask you one more question and we'll get out of here which is uh you know what what I think you've already mentioned some of these, but you know, what are the pathways now for future research and, and current? Yeah. I should say current research, really, that um, open that the book opened up for you. Yeah, I would say briefly. I say th- kind of three three things. I think one, um, there was a part of me that wanted to add a chapter uh, in Hope Draped in Black and looking at uh, contemporary hip hop because, like, I focused like I focused on certain kind of aesthetic, uh, you know, modes and traditions. So jazz, blues, the spirituals, also cinema. I looked at film. Um, it's certainly like fiction, but I was like, you know, you know, I, I, I you know, I'm somebody who's, who's listened to hip hop all my life with all the complexities of hip hop. I teach hip hop and I've written, I mean, I've written on what I see is like sometimes um, underappreciated modes of melancholy and sorrow in hip hop. So, but I just said, myself, no, that, that, that can probably wait to another project. So the project I'm working on now is called um, Disturbing Profanity, Hip Hop Black Aesthetics um, and the Volatile Sacred. So I'm, 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 I'm trying to think about, right, in kind of, you know, contemporary kind of popular culture, uh, you know, how melancholy uh, plays itself out. I think secondly um, is I, I, one of the things that I think I um, was underdeveloped in Hope Draped in Black is how this relates to religious studies. Um, and so one of the things that I've been trying to think more about is this notion, this what I call the kind of duplicity of the sacred, right? So traditions, as you know, I mean, Durkheim, Colloy, Mary Douglas and others, and Bataille and others, uh, where 
you know, the sacred has this double meaning. It can mean like, you know, the holy, the pure, but it can also mean defilement and contamination. So we're thinking about kind of, you know, the ways in which that, as Mary Douglas gestures toward, that that, you know, the, the notions of purity, taboo, prohibition, right? I mean, um, uh, notions of danger and so forth, social with certain bodies, that has all kinds of, you know, it seems to me important connotations and implications for those of us who think about coloniality, race, gender, sexuality, um, and, and, and other, other modes of power. Um, and I guess third would just be the pathway for me uh, has been kind of entering these conversations. I think in the book, I focused a lot on early and mid, um, well, besides maybe Morrison, but early kind of mid 20th century black, black thought. And I think I've been doing a lot more thinking about contemporary black studies, not just the conversations around optimism and pessimism, but also just, you know, uh, current, um, you know, um, strands of black feminism that I think are, are, are you know, um, I think I'm thinking of someone like Christina Sharp's In the Wake, but how certain terms like wake, flesh, anguish are already doing a kind of work that's beyond some kind of dichotomy of optimism, pessimism. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that's great. It's fascinating. Uh, well, Dr. Joseph Winters, just want to say thank you for sort of outlining your book for us and, and some of the process in writing it. We look forward to the discussion at our live panel uh, at the national meeting. So we'll, we will see you and hear from you again there. Uh, but for now, just want to say thanks for uh, taking us through today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed this talk. Looking forward to the more conversation. Yeah, great.